Once again, uh, we are in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, and we are going to look again at the first chapter of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This morning, some of you may remember when we first started this series, I showed you all a book um, that I was kind of using to launch through this the book of Jonah. The book's called The Castaway. If you want to order it, you can go to Banner of Truth Publishing, a book by Sinclair Ferguson. And um, just to encourage you, if you want to want to read that book, uh, it's it's a short book and it's over the book of Jonah. So anyway, we're kind of using that as, as a guide. I'm not just like up here reading the book or anything, but we're using that as a guide to, uh, to go through this series in the book of Jonah. We are going to look, if you remember last week, we looked at verses 1 through 17, or the first chapter of Jonah. We are doing the same thing again this week, and I will read it again for us. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it, from, uh, lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. When they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you and the, so that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you O Lord have done as it has pleased you and so they picked up Jonah they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights Last week, we took some time to see how Jonah had made an attempt to try to flee from the presence of God. However, as we noted, you can't escape from God. 
Jonah was pursued by God. There was nowhere he could go where God was not present. Jonah was about to, to, to discover that uh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Jonah's disobedience soon becomes spiritual dissolution. As a prophet, he would be one that was characterized by his obedience to the word of God because that's what prophets did. And one who would uh, welcome the presence of God into their life, but not this time. Now, his will and God's will are going two separate directions. And Jonah is a man who is spiritually lost at sea. He had lost all sense of security, all sense of stability, and desire to only go his own way, drifting from God. This metaphor of drifting is one that is also employed in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, where we will be going when we're done with the book of Jonah. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Jonah refused to hold to the word of God, which caused him to drift away from it. Therefore, leaving him with no anchor for his life. It is at this point that spiritual dissolution takes place. This morning, I want us to look at the life of Jonah and I want us to, to uh, draw from his life in this first chapter again and see what it reveals to us about what caused Jonah to drift away. And hopefully we can learn from Jonah and we can avoid some of these pitfalls that we see in Jonah's life. The first point I want to share with you this morning is this. Experience is not a proper guide for determining God's will. Experience is not a proper guide for determining God's will. In verse 3 of Jonah chapter 1, we read, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And what did he find in Joppa? Well, what do you know? It's a ship going to Tarshish. Notice what Jonah was looking for when he went down to the port at Joppa. Jonah was looking for a ship. He was looking for a ship that was going away from Nineveh. He was looking for a ship to Tarshish, and that's exactly what he found. A ship going to Tarshish. I wonder what Jonah was thinking. I wonder if he reasoned in his mind that God must be showing him Mercy, after all, he found exactly what he was looking for. Have you ever reasoned with God like that? You know, maybe you sensed the Lord telling you to do something, and, and maybe he said something uh, to, to you, or you sensed that, and we say things like, well, God, if you, if you don't want me to go, then... Do this or do that for me. And uh, can you imagine Jonah? Lord, if you don't want me to go to Nineveh, then I will find a boat going to Tarshish. Surely it was a sign from God. He found this boat. Despite the fact that his conscience was speaking against him, no doubt he reasoned in his mind that if God did not want him to go to Tarshish, then God would stop him. 
Surely God knew the difficult position that he placed Jonah in. Jonah could board the ship and have time to think and reason through what he had heard from God. I mean, what is the point of obeying the voice he had heard in his heart? Surely this wasn't from God. Surely he has to take time to calculate what he heard and take time to reason through what he heard God telling him to do. Surely he had to take time to just figure out what God was really planning for his life. I mean, what if Jonah was mistaken? What if it really wasn't God calling him to go to Nineveh? Maybe Jonah just made that up in his head. And now, look, God has given him this boat to go to Tarshish instead. So Jonah jumps on board the ship. How often... Do we misread our experiences or even read into our experiences what we want? We just say, well, surely this is, look what God's doing for me. And we pretend like it must be from God. All the while we're trying to excuse our disobedience. Because that's exactly what Jonah's doing. Jonah could have easily chalked up finding this boat to the providence of God. He could have easily said, look, it's divine providence. I'm supposed to flee away from Nineveh. I found this boat going exactly where I wanted it to go. However, there's one problem with that whole theory. There's one problem with Jonah even reasoning that in his mind. And it's the same problem that we have when we begin to reason things in our mind, when we begin to rely on experience. The problem was Jonah was being disobedient. And his experience of finding a boat that led him away from where he was supposed to go ends up leading him to the very gates of death. The ship in the harbor at Joppa was not there as a way of escape for Jonah from God's word, but instead it was there to be used by God to bring his servant back into obedience. The boat was not God's providence in any way shape or form for him to flee from being obedient to God but it was provided as a test for Jonah to see if he would really follow what he was supposed to do in the first place and the problem is Jonah failed and I wonder how often in our life we know exactly what God wants us to do and an experience comes along and we take that experience to say oh no I can do this instead there's a great lesson for us here, church. Today, we live in a time when everything in our life is about experience, especially religious experience. This church seems to be caught up in the middle of this whole idea that everything is about experience. As they continue to focus on the experiential and somewhere along the line, we have forgotten and the church has even forgotten that God communicates his will to his people primarily through his word, not through experience. We are often misled by constantly looking for the experience. Or constantly looking for that circumstance. Or we go through circumstances that, that mislead us and lead us to different directions. Because primarily our circumstance and our experiences are subjective. And so we can take those things to mean anything that we want them 
to me. And we turn them into signs from God. We must not be guided by our experience. Especially when we fail to be guided by God's word. We can't read into the events of our life whatever we want to read into them. Especially when we're not allowing God's word to guide us. Because Jonah allowed himself to be guided by experience, he suffered the consequences. We too will suffer the consequences when we allow our experience to be our guide. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say really silly things like this. If it was not meant to be, then God would not allow it. Can I tell you how many times I've heard that in counseling? Well, if it wasn't meant to be, then God would not allow it. I've heard of men saying, well, I married the wrong person. And God has led me to the right person. Through different experiences that he's revealed to me. So now I need a divorce from my wife so I can marry the right person. We have supposed Christian musicians who have left their wives for men because they think that their experience is what is trustworthy over the word of God. After all, we live in a society that says, follow your heart. Don't we hear that all the time? We'll just follow your heart. And so we go through our day making decisions, not based upon the word of God, not based upon what God is speaking to us, but instead we go through our lives making decisions based on experience and what makes us feel best. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. We can never proclaim providential arrangement as an excuse for doing wrong. Jonah wants to go to Tarshish and there is a ship heading to Tarshish. However, we can't use that experience for an excuse to do wrong. I mean, would we blame our sin on God? There is never a right time to do the wrong thing. Never. All I'm saying is that we can, we can sit down and we can look to our experiences and we can make them say whatever we want. And we can use them as an excuse for sin. The thief could say, well, I saw exactly what I was looking for laying in someone else's yard. So surely God led them to put that in their yard because they knew that's what I was looking for. God knew I needed that. And so I went and took it. The person that's unhappy in their marriage can say that someone else appreciates them more than their spouse appreciates them. And God brought them to just the right person in their life. Joseph in the Old Testament was appointed head of Potiphar's house. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he could have said God led him into that experience so he could commit adultery after all. If he refused, then he would lose his position. And he would not be able to help God's people. Thankfully, Joseph did not fall into that trap. Or how about David when King Saul is sound asleep 
And Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand on this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. I mean, surely this was God's providence. By, by this experience, David can see God must be working. However, David knew better and he responded with this. The Lord forbid that I should put on my hand against the Lord's anointed. We must refuse to use experience as a pretext to do wrong. You can't use your experience to say, oh, well, I can do whatever my experience dictates me to do. We must not look to our experience to determine God's will. Again, Spurgeon speaks about a school friend who had a violent temper. And when he recalled the school friend, he said this, that he would throw something when he was angry. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, what struck me forcibly was not that the boy got angry and not that he threw things when he was angry. But what struck him forcibly was this. Whenever he was angry, there was always something at hand for him to throw. And that's true of us as Christians. When your heart is set to rebel against God, there will be an experience there to justify your rebellion. There will be something there for you to have the opportunity to run from God. And when we're on the run from God, our experiences that come into our life are often a test and they're never there for you to use as an excuse for sinful disobedience. So that's the first thing that we see is that whole idea that, that don't confuse your experience. It's not a proper guide for determining God's will. The second point I want us to see is this. Rejecting God's call begins the process of searing our conscience. Have you ever been asked to do something that perhaps you didn't really want to do and you say no? The interesting thing about no, I, I learned this um, being a father especially. The interesting thing about that word no is the more you use it, the easier it is to say. I mean, the more times you say no, it just becomes easier and easier to say no. Where was Jonah when the storm blew in and the boat began to be rocked by this storm? Well, he was down in the inner part of the boat sleeping. And the language indicates that it was a special state of sleep, actually a hypnotic sleep from which Wakefulness would, would be difficult. Throughout this passage, we see the descent of Jonah. I don't know if you notice it or not, but as we, as we read through it, we see the descent of Jonah. When we read it, it says he went down to Joppa, where he went down into the ship, where he finally went down to sleep. Jonah is exhausted. He keeps going further and further down. And the imagery is he's, he's trying to get further and further away from God. And now that he's exhausted all of his energies 
and, he, and done all of his running, he felt like the crisis was over and it's time for him to fall asleep. Jonah was a believer in God. He worshiped the one true living God. But even though he was a believer in God, he was fast asleep in the inner part of the ship. Jonah was not only a believer in the one true living God, but he was a prophet. He was someone with whom God had spoken. He was a servant of God that was neglecting his duty. In the earlier years of his ministry, I'm sure he would never have dreamed that he would one day reject God's call and sear his conscience to God. Perhaps he, like many pastors today, thought that, that his office given to him by God afforded him some sort of special privilege or some sort of protection from straying from God. Surely his conscience would never allow him to stray from God. Surely uh, his conscience would always bring him back if he ever tried to stray away from what God was telling him to do. But we get to the point, just like Jonah where we sear our conscience, where the word of God no longer, no longer speaks so powerfully to us. We get to the point where we're like Jonah, while everyone is awake and they're calling out to their false gods, we are sleeping. Our conscience is not even speaking to us. We reject the, the call of God to share the gospel when God says that we need we should be sharing the gospel. We reject the call. We reject the call of God to invite someone to church on a Sunday morning. We reject the call of God to speak the truth in love to our brother or sister in Christ. And we begin the process of searing our conscience, which the Holy Spirit uses to speak to us. And we get to the point where we're no longer even hearing the voice of God. We're no longer hearing the prodding of the Holy Spirit because we've so seared our conscience. Jonah is not just in the midst of some daydream here. Jonah is in the middle of a crisis and he's fast asleep. He can't even hear his conscience speak to him. Amidst all of the confusion and the noise, Jonah is asleep. And while everyone around him is wide awake, Jonah is asleep. While Jonah is in great danger, Jonah is asleep. When others wanted him and needed him, Jonah is asleep. While the heathens around him are calling out to their false gods, Jonah is asleep. Jonah had silenced his conscience. Jonah was not hearing the word of God, nor his conscience, but instead he was hearing the storms of heaven accusing him of his guilt. And even at this point, Jonah was asleep and had to be awakened by a pagan sailor before he could even hear God. And interestingly enough, look at verse 2. God said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, and do what? Call out. Now look at verse 6. The sailor, arise, and do what? Call out. The pagan says, arise and call out. Imagine being Jonah, sound asleep, and he hears the words of the sailor, the same words he heard from God. This pagan exposes him and shows him his guilt. It must have been haunting to hear these words. Church, do you understand? Do you understand when we reject the call we begin to see our conscience. And soon, we're just like Jonah. 
we're asleep. We're asleep in our Christian walk. We're no longer sensitive to the directing of the Holy Spirit. We fail to respond to the sound of his voice. And we end up just like Jonah. Asleep. How can we possibly be asleep at such a time as this? Neglecting the word of God. Our churches are empty and people are not coming to Christ. And we are asleep. All around us, people are awake and doing things for a false faith. And we do little for the true faith. We get excited over the idols of our world in this day and age. We get excited over the sports and everything else. And yet when it comes to being a follower of Jesus Christ, we get paralyzed. Christian people are in danger of falling into sin. Our families are in danger of not knowing the fear of the Lord. The world is in danger of coming to the conclusion that Christianity is a farce and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members are in danger of spending eternity in hell and we are asleep. If anyone is asleep, it should not be the followers of Christ, yet the church is asleep. The world needs us to look around. We live in a day and age where the heathen spend enormous amounts of money on their idols. And we spend so little to serve the living God. We throw money at so many things while missionaries and pastors languish. Not even being able to stay on the field. And the work of God is stopped and even halted. Because we won't give to the work of God. While the heathen gives all kinds of money to their false idols and their false gods. And we hold tight-fisted to what we have we are asleep it's time to wake up it's time to be a steward church he has entrusted to us what we need and yet the heathen does more than the church why if we truly believe in eternal punishment we must all do all we can to rescue as many souls from it. Church, we have to avoid the searing of our conscience. It's time to wake up. The world is lost. Wake up and do what we're supposed to be doing. Thirdly, when we run from God, we become ashamed of ministry. When we run from God, we become ashamed of ministry. After Jonah, sorry, apparently I'm having technical difficulties or something. After Jonah was awakened, he staggers onto the deck of the boat. Maybe he's rubbing his eyes. Who knows? But you know what Jonah's met with as we read through this? He's met with all kinds of questions. The sailors had cast lots to see who was responsible before God for this storm that they're facing. And the lot falls on Jonah. Now look at what happens when he comes up. They, they say, on whose account is this storm happening? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? These aren't like, um, you know, icebreaker questions where you're trying to get to know someone. That's not what's going on here. 
These are questions they genuinely wanted to know of Jonah. It is bizarre that these men would take all this time to ask these questions when their lives are in danger. I mean, if the ship is sinking, the first thing that pops into your mind isn't, hey, let's ask this guy a bunch of questions about himself. But it is also revealing to us as well. Because in the midst of storms of life, when these men feel like God is judging them, they ask questions. And I know when I feel like God is correcting me in my life, I ask questions. And so these men know the storm is a judgment from God. And so they are asking questions. They're trying to ascertain why is it that they're going through what they're going through. And Jonah answers the questions. He answers these questions. He answers them all but one. There's one question he does not answer. And that's a question, what is your occupation? Jonah confessed he was responsible for the storm. He told them that he was a Hebrew and even his religion, yet he had no answer for the question, what is your occupation? Now, some commentaries say that this is really not a big deal, but I believe it is. Why would, why would he proclaim, why wouldn't he proclaim that he is a prophet of God? Why wouldn't he say that I'm a prophet? Well, because he couldn't. He no longer had a witness. God spoke to him as a prophet and he was being disobedient to his occupation. He had no word from God to deliver to the people. What is he going to say to them? Is he going to say that he's a prophet and that he hears from God and that God told him to go to Nineveh and he's running from God? He could have said that, but, but the truth is he's not hearing from God because he has silenced his conscience to God. He's ashamed to even confess his ministry. When we run from God and when we run headlong into sin, we are often ashamed of our ministry and, and we're, we're, we get just paralyzed. Are we really going to run around and tell people how active we are in our church when we're running headlong into sin? Are we going to tell God how, how great our ministry is when we're running from the Lord? Sure, Jonah was in a tough spot. He was not in an impossible spot, but he was in a tough one. Interestingly enough, seven centuries later, a man will be in a similar spot, just like Jonah. Prophet of God on a ship crossing the Mediterranean Sea, just like Jonah. He'll face a similar storm. The danger is just as great. But this time, the ship has a faithful servant of God who is sailing the sea in obedience to the will of God. This man knew the providence of God and that no matter what he faced, he was going to follow God. He stood on that ship and he proclaimed, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. In the midst of the storm, he took food with a loud voice and he gave thanks to God for his provision. You see, Paul was obedient to proclaim what was revealed to him. But Jonah was disobedient and therefore ashamed. Paul embraced his ministry. He knew God was in control of all things and therefore trusted that God was sovereign no matter what. Jonah denied his ministry and he paid the consequences. Church, when you run from God, you become ashamed of your ministry. 
Think about it. When you are acting against your conscience, it is so difficult to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're shamed. You're shamed. You're shamed of what you're doing. And you don't want to share with someone because you feel shamed. You know what the easiest solution to that is? Obedience. That's the easiest solution. Fourthly, our running from God eventually comes to an end. Look what Jonah says in verse 12. He says to these sailors, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Jonah has reached his end. He realized he can't, he can't escape from God. Seems like he's done. He's no longer useful to God. He has ran from God. He has rejected the call from God. He even has been ashamed of his ministry. He's no longer sure he's even a child of God. We must understand that when we lack obedience, we lack assurance. And that's exactly where Jonah's at. Jonah is at this point in his life, both physically and spiritually, spiritually, where he feels he's of no use to God anymore. He's just a castaway. There's no guarantee of a rescue for Jonah. What good is he to anyone at this point? And the sailors, they did everything within their power to not have to throw Jonah overboard after Jonah commanded them to do so. The men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not do so. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, it says. They called out to the Lord and begged for a pardon for the action that they were forced to take. In Jonah 1, verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. These men inwardly knew the winds and the waves obeyed the God of Jonah. They offered sacrifices to God and they made vows. But when it came to Jonah, they could do nothing. The only thing that they could do is commit him to the sovereignty of God and trust that God always knows what is best. Church, I want you to pause for a few moments this morning. And I want you to consider the narrative of Jonah. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Is there something in the life of Jonah that I see in my own life? Is there something in the life of Jonah that I see in my own life? Whether you're a church leader or deacon or Sunday school teacher or a church member, have you turned from God's word? In God's presence? Are some of these effects that we have talked about today invading your life? Are you depending on your experience to find God's will? Are you searing your conscience by neglecting God's call? Are you ashamed of ministry? I want you in these moments to ask yourself, is God saying something to you, are you like Jonah? 
Are you on the run from God? Have you turned from his presence and his word? Are, are you experiencing some of these consequences? Listen, your running from God will eventually come to an end. How long do you think that you can run? I guarantee you, you can't run longer than God. But there may be someone else here this morning. Maybe you struggle with any application to this message. I want you to notice the way of safety for those on board that ship. They were only safe when they threw Jonah overboard. You know, Jonah was the scapegoat. He had to go overboard to save their lives. The process was simple. One, they had to take Jonah and they had to throw him overboard. And they had to allow him to be swallowed up by the sea. What a terrible descent for Jonah. Descended to Joppa, descended on the boat, descended into the belly of the boat, and eventually descended into the sea and into the belly of a fish. Don't miss the point. The throwing overboard of Jonah became the safety for everyone. Sinner, how low will you have to descend before you realize the cross is your safety? What Jonah could not do, but his attitude announces, is done by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. Jonah could not give his life for the sins of the sailors. Only the sinless Jesus Christ can fulfill that role. The sacrifice of Christ is greater than the sacrifice of Jonah. But Jonah's sacrifice is a representation of that of Christ. It's a strange thing when we think about Jesus, the sinless Son of God, descended into the ship of our humanity in order to save us from our sin. Jesus was cast into the sea of the divine wrath of the Father on our behalf for the saved sinner. Christ has paid our debt in full. But for the one who has never received Christ as Savior, you stand under the judgment of Christ. And so I ask you, how long will you run? How low will you have to descend before you come to Calvary's cross and recognize the price has been paid? I'm so thankful for that hope that I have that's found only in Christ. My hope is not because I'm not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, Christ died for me. My rest is here, not in what I am, not in what I shall be, and not in what I feel, and not in what I know, but in what Christ is and must be, and what Christ did and is still doing, and he stands before the distant throne of glory. Do you know Christ as your Savior? How low will you have to descend before you realize 
Your salvation's found in the cross. Christian, how long will you sear your conscience? How long will you remain asleep before you realize God's calling you to wake up? In these chapters ahead, we will see what Jonah needed to do and what we need to do. We will see Jonah crying out to God for help. We will see him confessing sin. We will see him looking for salvation. And we'll see him repenting and trusting in God's grace. But you don't need to wait to trust in God's grace. You can do that today. This morning. You can trust in God's grace. And experience such a great salvation. In just a moment. We're going to sing a song. I'll be standing down front. Perhaps this morning you've heard God speak to you. Maybe not in some audible voice, but once again, your conscience. And I don't know what it may be, but I'm going to challenge you this morning to respond. If, if you need prayer, I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you. You can pray on your own. You can pray in your pew. Maybe this morning you heard him speak that you need Christ as your Savior. It's time to stop running. Time to trust in the cross. To be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you, share with you how you can know Christ as your Savior this morning. However God's spoken to you, I pray that you'd respond to him.